Hello everyone, this is Rising Above Shadows of Abuse, the weekly podcast for anyone currently experiencing trauma, pain, shame, guilt, anger, and wants to eradicate these negative emotions. I'm your host, Grace Opa. I'm a survivor of domestic violence. Welcome listeners to another thought-provoking episode on Rising Above Shadows of Abuse. In Europe, the main cause of femicide is by a partner, the domestic environment. In traditionally conservative, male-dominated, mostly rural societies in the developing world, the reasons are to do with women bringing shame on the family for various reasons. It can mostly be described generally as women wanting more independence. Another reason is the lack of desirability to have females in countries such as India and China, which has led to a major gender imbalance over several generations. In Central and South American drug smuggling countries, high rates of crime are responsible for an outrageous level of violence and death towards women. This is especially so in Mexico, Honduras and El Salvador we top the league tables for femicide. The rates of femicide differ depending on the specific country. But some of the countries with the top 25 highest femicide rates, 50% are in Latin America, with number one being El Salvador, despite being a relatively small country with a population of only 6.5 million. From the figures available, it could appear that a woman who is involved in human or women's right in a country with a high violent crime rate and speaks out against the government and criminal gangs stands a very high chance of being a victim of femicide. Femicide is the killing of a woman or girl because of her gender, usually by a man. It is one of the most extreme forms of gender-based violence. The late South African feminist activist and scholar Diana Russell first popularized the word femicide in 1976. She hoped that the term to describe the killings and murders of women would help rally activists behind the fight to protect women. Since then, activists have united to stand up against femicide all over the world. In Latin America, for example, where femicide is especially prevalent, the word has been translated into Spanish as feminicidio. Over the past four decades, femicide persists globally. All efforts to stop gender-based violence has proven abortive. Gender-based violence continues to rise especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, as more victims were trapped at home with their abusers during lockdowns. In countries where homicides are decreasing, the number of women being killed is increasing, according to the United Nations. Every year, an average of 66,000 women are violently killed globally, accounting approximately for 17% of all victims of intentional homicides. In 2017, 87,000 women and girls were killed globally. This means 137 women were killed daily. 
This was according to the UN report in 2000. The population from states, approximately 5,000 women are murdered each year in honor killings. The rates of femicide differ depending on the specific country. But majority of the countries with the top 25 highest femicide rates are in Latin America, with number one being El Salvador. In the UK, one woman is killed by man every three days. And this is a figure that has unchanged in the past decade. A new census analyzes this epidemic of male violence. 2013, Sasha Maidstone, a 16-year-old student, went to a Blackpool hotel for what she thought was an interview for a part-time cleaning job. The man she met, David Minto, 23, had lured her under false pretenses. He sexually assaulted her, stabbed her 58 times. She was only identified by a DNA taken from her toothbrush. Minto was sentenced to 35 years in prison, but for Sasha's family, there was no limit to their grief. Gemma Edgerson, Sasha's sister, set up Yes Matters UK in response to the killing. I wanted to know why this happened to Sasha and what I could do about it, she explains. Part of what her organization does is to talk to young people about consent, body image, pornography and media influence. I quote, what I know now is that as long as women are treated as objects and not people, we will continue to be disposable. The publication of a groundbreaking report called Femicide Census, which for the first time in Britain analyzes the shocking killings of women and girls from the age of 14 to 100 at the hands of men over a 10-year period, that is, 2009 to 2018, the census defines femicide as men's fatal violence against women. I quote. It reveals that on average, a woman was murdered every three days, a horrifying statistics. This is in spite of greater public awareness, increased research, changes in the law and improved training for the police. Patterns of male violence are persistent and enduring, the report states. The scandalous lack of progress in reducing femicide in the UK is in part because each killing is treated by various agencies as, I quote, an isolated incident and giving no cause for wider public concern. This results in the report saying, Information received from police via, for example, freedom of information requests can be sparse, inaccurate or incomplete. Corona's report often fails to reference the history of male violence while it is difficult to access official documents such as Independent Office for Police Conduct Reports and Domestic Homicide Reviews, all of which, along with media coverage, feed into the database of the census. Karen Ingala-Smith, Chief Executive of NEAR, a sexual and domestic violence charity, quotes, To solve a problem, you need to be able to say what it is. She and Clarissa Gallagher, a former solicitor and now restaurateur, published the first Femicide Census, a six-year review, which was between 2009 to 2015. Now, with a decade of debt to look back on, the census draw more damning conclusion about patterns of abuse and violence and what could have been or should have been spotted by the authorities.
of the 1,425 victims, almost half were killed by a sharp instrument, sometimes with additional brutal violence classified as an overkilling. The most common form of femicide is stabbing, Ingala Smith says. Yet most knife crime strategies focus on teenagers and gang crime. Strangulation was the second method. Non-fatal strangulation is often part of a pattern of abuse that is not sufficiently recognized and investigated. Ngala Smith and O'Gallaghan support the campaign by the Center for Women's Justice to add an amendment to the Domestic Abuse Bill due to become law next year to include the new offense of non-fatal strangulation. 62% of the dead women were killed by a current or former partner, most known in their own homes. Four in ten of these women were preparing to leave or had already separated. A crucial period and an opportunity missed for police and others on the front line, such as GPs and mental health advocates, to prevent a killing. I quote, Home is where the heart is, is a bitter life for many women, the report says. A history of abuse was evident at least 611 cases, 59%, including coercive control, stalking, harassment and physical, financial and emotional mistreatment. A third of the women had reported their abuse to the police. They still died. The femicide census originally came about because of Kirsty Trelaw, a 20-year-old nursery nurse who had asked for help. Police had referred her to Nair, Ingala Smith's organization. In January 2012, Trelaw was stabbed 29 times by her abusive boyfriend, Miles Williams, aged 19. I quote, I googled Kirsty because we were told so little about her death. End of quote. Ingala Smith explains, that's when I saw the shocking number of reports of death already that year. Ingala Smith created a website called Counting Dead Women, CDW, now replicated across the world. Why CDW? records every killing, the census team researches and includes only cases in which, I quote, it can be legally said a man has killed this woman. It can be the case that we are the only ones collecting data like this, says Ingala Smith, but we are. From the onset, it was essential to include all circumstances in which men kill women, not just husbands, partners and family femicides. O'Gallaghan adds, I quote, The state is failing to protect women, failing to implement policies, failing to take on board recommendations. You can spend time training, but if on the ground you don't implement the tools that are available, including injunctions, non-molestation orders and bail conditions, you are failing to save women's lives, and that's a human rights issue. End of quote. Over the decade, Sexual motivation ended the lives of 57 women. That's 4%. One perpetrator raped and killed a 50-year-old on their first meeting. She had internal injuries and bite marks. 32 murdered women had been involved in the sex industry. 16% of victims were born outside the UK, yet police recorded ethnicity in only a fifth of cases. The Domestic Abuse Bill's provisions excludes migrant women. I quote, If services are not alert to the reality that violence against women occurs across all backgrounds, then they are less likely to identify those at risk, the census points out.
End of quote. Men who kill do so within the context of endemic sex discrimination in a society that normalizes male predatory behavior from an early age and is too eager to blame victims. The census points out that the UK remains one of the few countries in Europe that has not ratified the Istanbul Convention, which draws on the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW. I quote, it recognizes that men's violence against women and girls will not be eradicated without fundamentally addressing sex inequality. The subheading of the femicide census is, I quote, if I'm not in on Friday, I might be dead. End of quote. These are the words of Judith Nims, mother of five, who was beheaded by her husband of 30 years. The report is dedicated to her memory and to every victim of femicide over the decade, each name listed. This is a systemic problem, the census states. These women matter. The femicide census concludes with a series of recommendations, including the thorough collection of sex desegregated data, ratification of the Istanbul Convention. Furthermore, the femicide rates of the over 60 in the UK is quite alarming. Many cases are dismissed as accidents and not investigated. For our end femicide campaign, we ask why society fails these victims. At the beginning of lockdown, Ruth Williams, aged 67, was strangled by her 70-year-old husband, Anthony Williams. The judge, Paul Thomas, called the killing an act of great violence. A fortnight ago, Williams was sentenced to five years for manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. He may be free within a year. Williams said he had snapped and choked the living daylights out of his wife. Her neck was fractured in five places. He said he had found lockdown really hard and he attacked his wife after she told him to get over it. The Observer launched a campaign to better identify femicide, name it, to improve the knowledge of it, know it, and to encourage improved methods to end it, stop it. A few years ago, women of Ruth Williams' age would not have been counted in the Crime Survey for England and Wales, CSEW. Then, it had a cap of 59 years, now it is 74, and is due to be raised next year, in excluding institutions such as care homes and refuges, a heathen death toll. Older women are more likely to have suffered five or more injuries than younger women, known as overkill. In one study, nine out of 13 victims aged over 80 were also victims of sexual assault. Motherers of older women were the least likely to express remorse or empathy. Invisibility devaluation and derision towards the older woman is added to everyday misogyny. Another group of killings of older women is parricide. The killing of one or both parents is overwhelmingly committed by sons. Bernadette Green, 88, died in May 2018. She was killed by her son, John Green, 65, a retired policeman. 
He almost got away with murder. A post-mortem revealed she had been smothered. John Green was sentenced to 14 years. Another group of older women highlighted by the femicide censors is those who have their lives taken in so-called mercy killings. Over the decade, there were 27 known mercy killings. Only one resulted in a conviction for murder and a full life tariff. In 10 cases, the killer pleaded guilty to manslaughter on grounds of diminished responsibility and eight received a suspended sentence. They walked free. In a study of 30 domestic homicides involving older women, it was judged in 14 cases that a death was preventable. 11 required an intervention in mental health. One needed help with an aggressive husband with dementia. One disclosure of abuse hadn't been acted upon. One victim's request to go into a care home rather than return to her son was ignored. It coincides and deadly microcosm of how little is being done. To stop femicide killings of women from minorities, police and authorities must learn to hear pleas for help and act on them. After 12 years of marriage, Z was brutally murdered by her French husband. A year before her death, the couple and their daughter had returned from France to the north of England to be closer to Z's British Pakistani family. Z had two degrees, but her husband made her take a job in a retail store. She was required to hand him all her wages. She used to be lively, but had become so withdrawn, she secretly came to see her sister. Z told her sister that her husband has been excessively controlling for years. He punched her and shook her and her daughter. Social services were involved. She wanted a divorce. And she was so worried about the shame she thought it would bring on herself and her community. She kept saying, no one is going to believe me. She was right. Neither the police nor social services did believe her. Z's husband stabbed her 50 times. A crime that might have been witnessed by their daughter. He's serving a life sentence with a minimum term of 16 years. It was also reported that black and racial minority women who were killed during a 10-year period from 2009 to 2018 were recorded in the unique database of the femicide census. Failure to implement laws adequately plus racism is a contributory factor. Women from ethnic minorities, termed as Bain, which comprises a diverse range of cultures and ethnicities, including African heritage, South Asian, Caribbean, Chinese, Latin American, Middle East and dual heritage, often face multiple challenges that further compound gender inequality, including being trafficked, disability, poverty, class, a language barrier, mental health and racism. The hostile environment created by immigration policies also claims victims in other ways. Dana Abdullahi, 35, was killed by her arrogant controlling husband who stabbed his estranged wife 50 times, all because she refused to support his application to remain in the UK forced marriages and so-called honor-based violence. Punishment for what are seen as female transgressions regarding wifely duties, virginity and westernized behavior 
also cost lives. Dr. Hanana Sadiq of the University of Gloucester, who is researching into honor killings and suicide for the Home Office, sees this as a very pertinent human rights issue. She is concerned that some agencies are reluctant to interfere in what is deemed to be a community's culture. The crimes themselves are dishonorable. They're merely justified by the perpetrator and wider community in the name of honor, Siddiq says. The state also colludes with community and religious leaders who act as gatekeepers to prevent outside interference by agencies including the police, on the grounds that it will be racist. That has to stop, she says. Valerie Ford was also killed by her ex-partner. Only one in five women killed by their partners have gone to the police. GPs and health professionals are crucial. Abuse is a public health issue. According to Save Lives, over half of victims of HBV had visited a GP in the previous 12 months. Yet, we are still finding health workers are not talking to people in a way that helps them to disclose. Sociologist Dr. Ravi Tiara has co-researched Reclaiming Voice, a study into sexual violence against racial minority women. The report said that this group experiences significantly worse access to medical, legal and psychological services. Tiara says, and I quote, the women told us they wanted to be listened to, believed and shown respect. They are not big asks. A one-size-fits-all approach is desperately failing minoritized women. Here's everything you need to know about why women around the world still live at the risk of femicide. What are the most common forms of femicide? There are many forms of femicide, but some are more widely recognized than others honor killings, in which a male relative or other family member kills a woman or girl over sexual or adulterous behavior to maintain the family's honor. This is particularly found in the Middle East and South Asia. In India, women often die at the hands of their in-laws if they provide an insufficient dowry, a sum of money or goods that a bride pays to a groom's family before marriage. Another form is non-intimate femicide, which is committed by someone who does not have an intimate relationship with the victim. It is less common, but it occurs. Latin America has seen non-intimate femicide rise at alarming rates, according to the World Health Organization. Women who are sex workers or work in nightlife are disproportionately impacted by non-intimate femicide. Other forms of femicide include sorcery or witchcraft-related killings, armed conflict-related killings, gender identity and sexual orientation-related killings, and ethnic and indigenous identity-related killings, according to the United Nations. Women also die by femicide indirectly as a result of unsafe abortions, maternal mortality, and harmful practices, according to Femicide Watch. What's more, femicide is often linked to human trafficking, drug dealing, organized crime, gang-related activities, neglect and lack of state action. Who is most impacted by femicide? 
Data on femicide is limited because most countries do not receive the necessary information to record the motivation for homicide or the crimes go unreported. Data shows that 66,000 women are killed violently every year, and this accounts for 17% of homicide. Research has identified several femicide risk factors. Women who were previously abused by the perpetrator are coupled but have a child from a different partner, have been estranged from a partner, or are trying to leave an abusive partner, are more likely to become femicide victims. There seems to be a correlation between education levels and femicide. College-educated women are considered more protected against femicide. Better educated women report that they have more autonomy in their romantic relationships, which suggests that they are less financially reliant on a partner and might be more likely to live an abusive situation that could escalate. Why does femicide happen? Women are mostly killed by someone they know closely. More than a third of femicide victims in 2017 were killed by their current or former intimate partner and more than half were killed by intimate partners or family members. According to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, pregnant women and pregnant women who are abused during pregnancy are most at risk of intimate partner femicide, according to the World Health Organization. Women are not protected against femicide by their ethnicity, age, or social status, according to the domestic violence campaigner Karen Ingala-Smith. However, at a societal and structural level, femicide is more common in countries with greater gender inequality and less female representation in government, according to the World Health Organization. Reduced government investment in health and education is also a factor. Where does femicide happen? The antique in femicide has sparked international outcries worldwide since Russell first coined the term in the 1970s. 2019, the rape and murder of 19-year-old college student Uyinene Mintweyana in Cape Town, South Africa, set off public outrage and prompted President Cyril Ramaphosa to sign a gender-based violence declaration. The murder of Pina Gutekin, a 27-year-old woman who went missing and was found dead on July 21st in Mogla, Turkey, influenced the global social media campaign. One month later, the killing of 20-year-old Vanessa Gulen, a Mexican-American army specialist who was murdered by fellow soldier Aaron Robinson in Fort Hood, Texas spurred a hashtag MeToo movement in the military. While 18 Latin American countries have passed laws restricting violence against women, they have not reduced femicide. Government inaction and impunity for perpetrators is attributed to high femicide rates in several Latin American countries, and 98% of these murders go unprosecuted in the region. Women's rights activists and the families of femicide victims in Mexico have relentlessly tried to seek justice since the spike in missing and murdered young women from Juarez factories in the 1990s, but the government proceeds to downplay the issues. Meanwhile, in the U.S., the number of women killed has been steadily rising since 2014 and 1,948 women were killed by men in 2017, according to the Violent Policy Center. Black and Latin transgender women are especially at risk of femicide in the 2020s. 
How can we end femicide? Reducing intimate partner violence is the most effective way to prevent femicide, which requires addressing gender inequality on the individual and societal levels, according to the World Health Organization. Collecting more data on femicide is key to understanding the phenomenon. Sex-segregated data that includes the relationship between the victim and the perpetrators and strengthening research methods to understand the societal context under which femicide occurs are both essential to protecting women from future acts of violence. Health professionals and law enforcement agencies have a role to play as well and need to be trained to better identify intimate partner violence and if a woman is at risk of femicide, especially during pregnancy. Legislation restricting gun access for perpetrators of intimate partner violence, increased number of law enforcement agencies and mandated arrests for violating restraining others related to intimate partner violence are all considered protective measures against femicide by the WHO. Changing laws also to ban honor killings and enforcing punishments for perpetrators is another important step in ending femicide. Improving honor killings education and responses in countries and migrant communities where honor killings are common is essential. Advocates are calling on international communities and bodies to step up efforts to reduce gender-based violence and apply a gender lens to COVID-19 recovery and relief. Funds for health and social services to support women and girls are especially crucial to help prevent femicide after the pandemic, according to the International Rescue Committee. In conclusion, we all have a part to play to eradicate femicide. If you've enjoyed this episode, kindly subscribe, leave a review and comment. See you on the next episode. Bye for now. For more Rising Above Shadows of Abuse news, head to our Instagram.com page or YouTube.com page forward slash Rising Above Shadows of Abuse. And our email address is risingaboveshadowsofabuse at gmail.com. So interact with us. See you soon.